Welcome to episode 14 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. This time I'm looking at Irving Rapper's The Gay Sisters from 1942, starring Barbara Stanwyck, Geraldine Fitzgerald, Nancy Coleman, and George Brent. It's available to watch online at dailymotion.com. Barbara Stanwyck shines on screen whenever she has an adversary, and she has plenty of them in The Gay Sisters. There are lawyers who add on billable hours year after year, draining the sisters' inheritance an irascible cook who boils the vegetables and serves them with too much water. Nosy Parker reporters hound the trio in and out of the courtroom. An ex-husband who makes legal trouble and tries to steal her family's land. There's also a smirking Gig Young who plays an artist that she pegs as one who smells up the joint with bad portraits of her father. Even with the people she loves, her sisters and her son, a boy who doesn't even know she's his mother, Stanwyck's character, Fiona Gaylord, seems most comfortable with belligerent encounters. When her son Austin is attacked by a gang of boys on the street, she leans out the window and tells him how to fight back. She tells the boy to punch his opponent in the nose. When the little boy replies that he can't reach, she tells him to kick the boy in the shins. Her son does, but he's still shaken up when he's safe inside the kitchen. He says, when I first saw you, I thought you were going to help me. Stanwyck's Fiona replies, but I did help you. I taught you how to fight. She tells the boy that walking down Fifth Avenue is as dangerous as the jungle. Tough love indeed. The advice that she gives the boy and repeats later near the end could have been her motto in real life. I will lay me down and bleed a while and then rise and fight again. Stanwyck once told a reporter, I hate whiners. You have to fight life and make it work for you. The viewer senses that Stanwyck had a similar education on the streets of Brooklyn when she was shuttled around different families in foster care as a child. Fighting back was the default setting that defined her life and career. Barbara Stanwyck reminds women that doormat status is never an option. She never shrank from standing up for herself with studio heads, directors, or co-stars. Hell, she made Lawrence Harvey cry on set when they made Walk on the Wild Side after she chewed him out for returning late from lunch and drunk to boot. With frequent references to her flaming red hair, Fiona is repeatedly characterized as combative throughout the picture, as in that old chestnut about redheads being hot-headed. In a court scene, a nurse identifies her by her hair and says, there couldn't be two like her. In the opening scene, during her father's farewell before he ships off for the Great War, he repeatedly says of Fiona, this is my son. Chief among his counsel to his daughter, the son, is to never sell the land, that the land is the family religion. Being a stand-in son lends an authority that would have eased the censors from objecting to such a cantankerous woman shouting abuse at men. Her honorary male status gives her free reign to take charge. People remark of her, she's got no heart, only a stomach. Since she's rail thin and we don't really see her eat, it's an odd way to describe Fiona. Another way the film emphasizes Fiona's short fuse is in the courtroom scene when she builds a house out of wood matches when she's bored. When the house falls down, you might be able to count to ten before she explodes in court. Fiona's summary of the case is that it's so complicated it now looks like a plate of spaghetti. She bosses everyone. She sneers over Evelyn's monocle. Evelyn, tasting a wine from the family cellar, says, This belongs with a partridge at the Savoy. 
Fiona caustically replies, so does that monocle. She forbids Susanna from marrying jerkface Gig Young. She endlessly corrects her son's pronunciation of words like erster to oyster. In Victoria Wilson's peerless biography of Barbara Stanwyck, Steel True, she quotes Stanwyck, who described her big emotional showdowns on screen as the get-outs. They are usually the best part of any Barbara Stanwyck picture, where she howls at some man before she shows him the door. Think of Stanwyck tearing into her pimp father and baby face when she tells him that she's sick of dirty, rotten men and he's lower than any of them. The spittle flies from her lips. We believe she could pull out his jugular and drink his warm blood and be justified doing so. Or how about when she all but breathes fire on a man in 10 cents a dance when she says, you're not a man, you're not even a good sample. Or when she threatens to sue Henry Fonda and then takes Sam Levine's badge and the Mad Miss Manton. Levine wisely observes that even if he killed her, she'd come back to haunt him. That's how much energy her contempt has. It can reach across the grave. Or when she curses her father, played by Walter Houston and the Furies. Stanwyck has few equals when it comes to angry eruptions on screen. Not even the benevolent volcano Betty Davis can match the eruptive fury Stanwyck can summon. In The Gay Sisters, Fiona sacks a lawyer for pilfering her family estate and overrides his objections that she can't change attorney so far into the case. She storms across the family's sitting room, bellowing at the ineffectual man to get out. She hands the lawyer his ass in 40 seconds of incandescent rage and tosses his briefcase out the window. It lands on target at his feet. It's a wonder he wasn't vaporized and reduced to smoldering ash with only his wingtips left standing on the sidewalk. She's wearing a smart gilet and wide leg trousers for the scene, which lends sartorial heft when she demolishes the man of the courts. If you made a supercut of Stanwyck's get-out scenes, it would prove an invaluable resource for pumping up a woman's self-esteem before a big meeting or presentation. When Stanwyck yells blue murder at a man, it gives me hope that there is order and justice in the universe. As regular as sunset, Stanwyck's get-outs are a mood elevator. The best scene in the picture, aside from Stanwyck's get-out, is when she confides in her sisters about her secret marriage to George Brent. She narrates it for them with all the intimacy of their bond. It's ruthlessly honest, both in what she had planned and how the best-laid plans of sass-mouthed dames fall apart because of some pesky man. Her sisters Susanna and Evelyn lay stretched out on their stomachs across the bed as they listen. It looks like a familiar position from late-night gossip sessions. This is a sass-mouthed dame's bedtime story. Fiona taps her sister's memories with cash, something they've been thinking about their whole lives as women who are notorious for not being able to pay a bill in 20 years. She asked them to recall when she was 21 and came into money that allowed Susanna to make her society debut and for Evelyn to make her trip to England. Their great-aunt Sophronia had died. In her will, she left $100,000 to Fiona for when she married. Fiona had planned to convince a cousin upstate to do it and pay him off with $25,000 in the bargain. On the drive up, she runs over fresh asphalt in the road that was laid by a crew George Brent's character is managing. Brent's character, Charles Barkley, becomes a patsy for her sisters in this story. 
Once she noticed the spaniel's look in his eyes, she said, the same one their dog used to get at dinner time. Moon over Fiona, the big man does. What she doesn't tell her sisters is that she was attracted to him. She exchanged the pimply-faced cousin for a more attractive sap, she tells them, but she's reluctant to admit her own desire. Instead, as she narrates the events, she plays it like satire. She manipulates him. She plays coy and demure. She tells her sisters, I pushed the guy aside so the moonlight struck me at just the right angle, and then concludes with the news that he proposed with, I'll never forget the stink of those apple blossoms. On their wedding night, she pretends to faint and sends him on a fool's errand so she can run out on him. Or, in Fiona's words, I draped myself over the banister like Monday's wash. But Charles Barkley returns before she can leave. He finds her note and the $25,000 which he pockets. He agrees to her deal but prevents her from leaving. Don't scream. I'm your husband, he tells her as he moves in closer. Fiona only thought she had hoodwinked him. The scene cuts back to the women in the boudoir. Charles Barkley's sexual menace is undercut by the amused screams from Evelyn and Susanna. Actually, the laughter begins before the scene is cut back to the women in their nightgowns. The laugh of the Medusa eliminates his ability to master the story. The women's laughter attests to the fact that he didn't ravish an innocent bride, more like she lost a bet. Evelyn guffaws the loudest, telling Fiona that she got what she deserved by playing games with Barkley. She points and laughs at her older sister. He's the village maid, and you're the city slicker. Fiona has never been a damsel in distress, and if anything, she styled herself like the hunter trapping game. As much confidence as she put in her plan, it went awry. She doesn't like admitting defeat any more than she will admit that she was attracted to him. She's playing the obstinate role that men usually play in romantic comedies. The gender role reversal suits the dynamic between Stanwyck and Brent. She calls the shots and he waits for her to change her mind about him. She does take plenty of noise in the picture, though. When her new lawyer finds out that she kept the son a secret from the father, he starts to lecture her and then change his tact. He says, I should be very angry with you, but you've gone through a great deal and you're a woman. Fiona replies, that's what got me into all my trouble. Trouble is part and parcel of being a woman. If she really were her father's son, she wouldn't have to fight so hard to carry on the family legacy. During one of her many showdowns with Charles Barkley, he yells at her, hate is a thing you thrive on. Although women may get a thrill out of hearing her say that she doesn't know why anyone wants a husband, and that she generally rails against the powers that be throughout the picture, when she eventually gives in at the end, it doesn't feel like a surrender. After all, she's not June Allison. Barbara Stanwyck's Fiona floats on so much vitriol that when she finally hooks up with Brent's Charles Barkley, it doesn't feel like she's sold out or submitted, even though she conforms to conventional gender roles at the end. She may have a ring on her finger, but she'll still be spoiling for a fight. To contrast with Fiona's bellicose nature, the middle sister Evelyn, played by Geraldine Fitzgerald, plays a woman who's always looking for a tumble, to use the slang of the era. She's so randy, she could use the cold shower that Charles Barkley forces on Fiona after she tried to drain the family's wine cellar. Geraldine Fitzgerald exhibits so much sex pot panache that she nearly steals the picture from Stanwyck. Almost every line she delivers is in a languid, pillow-talk voice, like she's about to say something filthy. 
You can hear the Wicklow Hills and Convent School education in her plummy accent. Fitzgerald's father ran a law firm that was cited in James Joyce's Ulysses, so Geraldine's accent summons the affluent horsey set, but a wealthy background doesn't diminish the lusty verve she projects on screen. She nearly fillets a bunch of grapes during a scene when she argues with her younger sister about flirting with Gig Young. You've never seen a more libidinous bit of business on screen with fruit until the recent introduction of grapefruit and peaches in erotic play. Perhaps because she's too busy fighting a custody battle, Fiona doesn't realize that Evelyn is trying to steal the youngest sister's fiancé. When Evelyn rings with the most outlandish excuse for spending the night with Gig, she can't return home because it's raining. It's red rag to the bull that is Fiona. Over the phone, Fiona says, what do I think you're up to? I'd tell you, but I don't want my phone taken out. She knows that trick all too well and wastes no time stopping Evelyn. When Fiona arrives to interrupt Fitzgerald's effortless seduction, the look that passes between the sisters holds more embers than the fire raging in the hearth. The force of their will registers off the charts when they collide. Evelyn attempts to dodge the seductress charge. Fiona will have none of it. Evelyn is the only person who doesn't seem intimidated by Fiona, but even she doesn't have a leg to stand on. Fiona is the head of the family. She declares that Evelyn's going back to England on the next clipper. Toying with men is all very well, but not when it breaks a Gaylord's heart. He belongs to Susanna, so Evelyn's wiles are intolerable. She demands family loyalty above all else. Evelyn says, that's hitting below the belt. Fiona replies, that's an old Gaylord custom. No one fights better than Fiona. Gig Young's character, an artist, the one who smells up the joint in Fiona's opinion, is far too sure of himself. He is a cub among a lioness trio, and he doesn't recognize how they outclass him. He tries to be glib, with a permanent smirk on his face and in his voice. When he meets Evelyn, he quips, I know a Gaylord face when I see one. Too much pride and just the least bit shortness of the chin. Fitzgerald looks amused at his impertinence and tells him, go on, tell me what I look like. He replies, an incendiary bomb with a monocle. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Gig Young's appeal remains a mystery. It's hard to understand why two sisters would fight over him. The actor was born with the name Byron Barr. He was looking for a scream name because another actor had the same name and decided, also inexplicably, to adopt his character's name. If you had the ability to select any name at all in the world, why would you choose Gig Young? A red flag should go up somewhere. Is it any wonder that the man turned out to murder his fifth bride shortly after their marriage and then turned the gun on himself? I think not. Nancy Coleman doesn't have much to do as the sweet sister, yet even there she has a spark in her character too. She's trying to see the back of a marriage that only lasted four hours so she can marry Gig Young. She wants to pay off the husband to divorce her. Coleman Susanna explains her reason for such a brief marriage. The groom wanted to bring his mother on their honeymoon. George Brent's voice, deep but soft as goose down, the kind you can really lean into, always supported the leading lady to her best advantage. He looks besotted with Stanwyck. In Scott O'Brien's biography of George Brent, he quotes the actor who says of all the co-stars he worked with, 
Barbara Stanwyck was his favorite because she was the most human and unassuming and that she didn't have a malicious bone in her body. It shows how much he likes her. In many of their scenes together, he seems to just be watching her and admiring her. He doesn't look on guard as he often did with Betty Davis or even Kay Francis. You can see that he trusts Stanwyck and he feels connected. Brent isn't praised nearly as much as he deserves for his contribution to women's pictures. I'll leave you with this excerpt from Victoria Wilson's biography. This goes all the way back to Barbara's days as a quarrying, but it marks her out for how hard she worked and how much she had to fight from when she was just a, an orphan teenager hoofing it on the stage. Keep in mind that in the excerpt, she hasn't yet changed her name to Barbara Stanwyck. So in this portion of Victoria Wilson's biography, she's still Ruby Stevens. Earl Lindsay's new review was at the Everglades Cafe. Gay Paris was two months into its run when Lindsay hired Ruby, May, and Dorothy to be in the floor show of the Everglades Ship Ahoy. The Everglades Cafe was transformed into a nautical setting, from the menus and furniture to the sailor suit costumes. The Everglades Cafe was a gangster's haunt. Bootlegging, speakeasies, murder, dope, said May Clark. No gangster hurt anybody except another gangster. There were no accidental killings. They were good shots. They kept their own reasons and their own people. The dancers' dressing rooms were underneath the stairs, separated from the rest of the club by a huge door made of concrete and iron. Gus, the bodyguard, was stationed there to protect the performers. He loved every one of us, May said. He used to write poems and put them in pretty frames and present one to each little girl. Ruby and May and the others were in the dressing room getting ready for their next number one night when they heard the sound of the concrete stage door being rolled shut. They knew Gus was locking them in. Something was happening on the outside, a murder or a raid, said May. It happened so frequently that Ruby and the other dancers thought nothing of it and continued on with their conversation. After it was over, Gus refused to tell them what had happened. May noticed a man sitting in a corner table each night and found out he was the head of the New York narcotics squad assigned to the Everglades Cafe to monitor who entered and left and what went on in between. He and May became friends. He knew she was 15 and that each weekend her mother took the train to New York to see if her daughter was all right and if May was still smoking cigarettes. The second show ended each evening at 11. Often, May, Ruby, and Dorothy would go out after the show, hopping from one supper club to another, said May, like the Silver Slipper where Texas Guinan was, or the Yacht Club. May's escort became the head of the narcotics squad, who promised May's mother that he would watch out for the daughter. May and Ruby were frequently guests of Billy Rose, with the head of the narcotics squad along as well. At other times, Ruby and May went out with gangsters for a steak dinner and an occasional gift of a bracelet or a necklace, which they quickly sold for extra money. To May, the gangsters were nice men who happened to be in an, an illegal business. For the most part, they behaved like gentlemen and treated Ruby and May to dinners. Where else were we going to get steak dinners, said, said May. Being in two shows a night seemed manageable to Ruby and May. The Everglades Cafe was a block away from the Schubert on 44th Street. After a few evenings of doing both shows, Ruby and May had the run figured out. They finished their numbers at the Schubert Theater, got out of their costumes, threw on their coats. Ruby had brought hers on the installment plan and prayed the two jobs would hold out until the coat was paid for. 
she ran out into the cold winter nights and down 44th Street, wearing nothing but a coat and a pair of shoes. Stark naked in freezing weather, and the coats were not so hot either, paper mache. They got to the Everglades Cafe in time for their ship ahoy numbers, performed the routines, stripped off for their sailor suit costumes, put on their coats, rushed back to the Schubert, and were there in time for their next number in Gay Paris. Working in two shows, they averaged as many as 38 dance routines in a night. We worked like dogs, and we were strong as horses, said Ruby, who danced even when she had pleurisy. You can't take a deep breath with pleurisy, said Ruby, so you take a short breath, and you go on until you run out of breath. I danced with blisters on my heels because I didn't want an understudy to take my place. Ruby learned discipline to avoid being fired. I couldn't sing with worth a darn, she said. It didn't matter as long as I could belt it out so they could hear me in the back row. Although Ruby was far from being a singer, she had a sultry look, a defiant gaze combined with an unadorned quality that was useful for a showgirl. Al Jolson stood in the wings during the ensemble numbers, smoking a cigar. As Ruby came off the stage, she slid by him on her way to the dressing room and tried to ignore his sexual remarks. After one performance, Ruby attempted to slide by him as usual. Jolson blocked her way and cornered her against a wall. Ruby was worried about the costume. It didn't fit well and was pinned to stay on. She tried to laugh off Jolson's comments to hurry by for fear of losing her job. Jolson told her he was going to take her home that night. Ruby forgot to make a joke of it. She became furious and struck him. He pushed her against the wall and ripped open her costume. She couldn't scream out. There was a show going on. He took his lit cigar and held it up to her skin with its red-hot tip burning into her breast and held it there until she blacked out. Ruby was tough, May said. She was cool, very, very cool. She played men like she would any scene. She had a gentle side that she used to play up to men, but it could also be genuine. Ruby could be cruel to May, but at other times she could be protective of her, almost motherly. She was becoming more of a mother to May than Mrs. Klotz, and May's mother resented it. Ruby had a strength and a toughness that May and Dorothy counted on. She advised them about what to wear and would lend them clothes, even her shoes. If they were entertaining, Ruby could be curt with guests. If she wanted to go to bed, she would say, this is it, get the hell out. She had childlike gentleness that surprised her friends. It was a sweet side that few people saw. If I was sick or tired, a warm, almost mothering side of Ruby came out. It wasn't what Ruby showed most people. She didn't like standing naked before people. Ruby told Dorothy and May that for their next shot, their next opportunity, they had to wangle it, but do it legitimately and always maintain their independence. I wouldn't have known that, said May, but Ruby did. Dorothy and I listened to her. She was smart. We were harem-scarum kids, madcaps, who did crazy things, but I never knew Ruby to do an unrefined thing. She was the Duchess, said May, always. Thanks for sticking with me through this episode. Join me next time when I talk about Olivia de Havilland and to each his own. Thank you. I got an island in the Pacific.